your Bibles, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. And while you're looking for that 21st chapter, I want to read a few verses from the book of Hebrews. And I read this passage when we studied the first part of this chapter. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse number 8, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham is one of the greatest men in the pages of Scripture. And we read about him in the 11th chapter of Hebrews because he was a great man. Hebrews 11 is that document of a testimony to the power of overcoming faith. And this morning we read a large portion of Hebrews chapter 11. And there are many examples of believers in that chapter that trusted and obeyed God and without actually seeing God's promise fulfilled, not in their lifetime. They believed in things that they couldn't see with their eyes, and they relentlessly pursued this hope that God had given them of the promise of this eternal city. So they knew that they were dealing with an eternal hope. They weren't going to actually see what God had promised in this life, but they did know this, that death was not going to separate them from that promise. Abraham was the kind of man who believed in God in that promise. And in fact, his faith is the preeminent faith that we find in the New Testament. In both Romans and Galatians, the Apostle Paul used Abraham as an example of the uh, cardinal doctrine of the New Testament, which is justification by faith in Christ alone. And so when Abraham went to a place that he knew nothing about, a place that was promised by God, one that he would receive as an inheritance, he just packed up his belongings and he went to live where God told him to live. And God landed him in a country that he promised to give to his kinsmen. Now, again, there, there's something very special about that kind of faith because Abraham lived his life obeying the commandments of God, trusting in God, because he had his eyes on something that was very special. It wasn't the country that God promised that he would live upon the earth. That was great in God's promise. But more he was looking for something that he would never see with his mortal eyes. He knew there was a new country, there was a better place, and that was the city that's built by God. And we ought not to think that Abraham was like the Spanish conquistador Cortes who looked for a city of gold and there were many explorers that came to this country looking for that city. And he's not like those who thought that they would find their treasure in the lost city of Atlantis or someplace like that. But Abraham looked for a city that was not built by man. It was the city that was built by God's own hand. And in another way that we could state that is that Abraham looked for that city that was promised by Jesus. In John chapter 14, Jesus said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. 
And that place that Jesus has gone to prepare and that house that has many mansions is the city that Abraham looked for. It's the very same one that we read about here in Revelation chapter 21. Now, looking at that passage in John chapter 14, I know that there is a a lot of controversy, argument over uh, the King James translation of a house that has many mansions. I mean, uh, a house that has many mansions doesn't really seem to make a whole lot of sense. But I don't think that we really need to quibble over that, uh, that phraseology. The house refers to the place where God lives, to that great city that is the New Jerusalem, and the mansions refer to the dwelling places that God has for his people. And some people are afraid that mansions does not accurately translate the original language, and as if mansion could be too much of hyperbole to apply to our home in heaven. And we sing that song, I've got a mansion over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And as we sing that, I don't really worry about the word mansion. I'm not concerned about that. I I think that mansion is probably far too less a word to describe what heaven is going to be like. It's a most glorious place. And I don't think any of us are going to be disappointed when we get there. In fact, as we read this text tonight in Matthew 20, or Revelation 21, we, we get a faint glimmer of the majesty of heaven. And there's really not much that I can add to the superlatives that John gives here. Uh, he saw this, and, and, I, and I haven't. And so John put it in the most glowing language that he could. And so I don't think I'm anybody to say that I could do better at description than, than John was. So we're going to read this text, and I'll make some comments about it. Uh, I really do have to make a a sermon out of this, and I want to give you some helpful information, but I don't really want to go beyond what Scripture says, and I don't think that I could make you desire heaven any more than the description that John has given. But this is what preachers do. We slow down the narrative and make comments. You may have read these scriptures a thousand times before, and reading them takes all of about maybe three or four minutes. So we're going to slow it down, though, and we're going to read between the lines just a little bit, and hopefully we're going to understand this better. Now, it's a very long passage we want to read here tonight, beginning in verse number 9, and I'm going to read all the way down to the end of the chapter. And unfortunately, the person that put chapters in the Bible made a break between verse number 27 and chapter 22, when there really shouldn't be a break there, because it's all one continuous section from verse number 9 all the way down to uh, verse number 5 in chapter 22. But we're going to stop at verse 27, and the reason I'm doing that is because that ends what we can call the exterior uh, description of the city of heaven. And then the following verses begin the description of the inner part of the city. So John describes the place that Abraham looked for, this building, or this city rather, that's built by God. Revelation 21, verse number 9, And there came to me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her light was likened to a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates." 
And at the gates, twelve angels and names written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. He that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof. And the city lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. And he measured the city with the reed, 12,000 furlongs. The length and the breadth and the height of it are equal. And he measured the wall thereof, 144 cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold, like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a chalcedony, the fourth an emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysasopris, the eleventh a jacinth, and the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were transparent glass. And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city hath no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it. For the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there." And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. This evening we're just going to get a start into this passage. And in trying to figure out how that I would present this material... I figured that the best way to do this would be to skip around quite a bit, and that would make it the easiest for us to see. And so the outline that we'll have over the next several weeks won't be uh, follow these verses in order, but we're going to skip around, and then by the time that we get done with all, there's about five messages that I've planned on this, and by the time we get done with all of those, we'll have covered everything that's in these verses. Now, what you'll need to do is to kind of catalog what we're going to say tonight because this is the first message in this series of five and it's going to be a month before we actually get back to that second message. So uh, with the holidays that are coming up and next week I'll be preaching at Brother Castro's church so I won't be here. So it's going to be a month before we get back to this. So I want to look at one particular part of the city tonight. As I said, just kind of getting our feet a little bit wet into this. And I want to talk to you this evening about the angels of the city, the angels of the city. And I know that we are most concerned about people that are going to live there. But I don't think that we really ought to be selfish about this and that we should consider that God also has an innumerable number of angels that are going to be involved in God's administration of this heavenly city. The New Jerusalem will be a place that's filled with God's angels. 
And we're not going to be subject to angels when we get to heaven any more than we are here on this earth. But those angels will be there as we are in continual service to God. And I think that we ought to consider the angels as an extension of God's providential care for his people. In Hebrews chapter 1 it says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to them who shall be the heirs of salvation? And so God sends angels for us now to minister to us, and they're also going to continue to minister to us when they are in heaven. And I like to think of it this way, that angels are God's attendants. And since we are heir to all the things that God has in heaven, the angels will be our attendants as well, and so they will serve us as they serve God. Each of the angels is perfectly holy. They're not prideful. They're not capable of sin, which means that they're not going to be jealous of us or the position that we have. But we also know this, that angels weren't always like that. Some of them were like that, but not all of them were. If you remember a couple of times, I think that we've talked about this and when we've had a little bit of opportunity to study about angels, that it could be when Lucifer fell, when he rebelled against God, that the reason he did was because... Lucifer was so prideful that he couldn't take God's intention to not only be in subjection to God, to be lower than God, but also that God would elevate man and put him into such a place that the angels would be subject not only to God, but also to man. But the angels that are in heaven now uh, don't have the disposition that Lucifer had because since the fall, the angels have been preserved in perfect holiness. So they don't have any evil thoughts, and there are no evil desires. Certainly, they have no jealousies about men that have become God's children and have inherited a home in heaven. So we're going to live with these angels, and we'll be in the presence of God with them. There'll be a ever-present, uh, ever-present beings in, in that city in which we live. Hebrews twelve twenty two says, But ye are come to Mount Zion, and unto the holy city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels. So in this passage, where John begins to see what heaven is like, this city of the new Jerusalem, we also have mention of angels here. And the first one is found in verse number 9, and I would like to call this angel the guiding angel. This is John's tour guide to show him through the city of the new Jerusalem. And the first part of this we see in the verses tonight is, is mostly a tour of the outside. I mentioned that. John said, he showed me that great city. And then when you get into chapter 22, we're going to get a look at the inside. And there John says, he showed me a pure river, uh, pure river of water. So we're looking here at verses 9 and 10 in which we're introduced to this heavenly tour guide that shows John the city. Verse number 9 says, And there came unto me one of the seven angels which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues and talked with me saying, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now there is a dynamic contrast in verses 9 and 10 concerning this angel that spoke to John and chose him the heavenly city as compared to Revelation chapter 17 
when there was an angel that showed John the evil beast and then also showed him the city of Babylon. And this is most likely the same angel that we read about in chapter 17. And I want you to notice here why I would think or why Scripture would indicate that these are probably the same angels that show him both of these places. In Revelation 17, verse 1, it says, And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And then in verse 3, it says, So he carried me away in the spirit unto the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit on a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And you'll remember, I hope, that when we studied chapter 17, we said that all of this is emblematic of the city of Babylon, the, uh, that is the uh, capital city of the Antichrist. And so in both cases, in chapter 21, verse number 9, and in chapter 17, verse 1, this angel is identified as one of the angels that had the seven vials full of judgment. Now, there were seven of those angels. Uh, One, there was an angel for each of those vials. And one of these angels showed John Babylon. And again, I think it's probably the same one that shows him the New Jerusalem because there's a particular purpose in showing the remarkable differences that there are between these two cities. And I think that it would teach us, uh, one thing we ought to see is that John recognized this angel. This is the same one that had spoken to him before. So he recognized him, and that would be uh, an indication that angels have their own identity. That angels are not rubber stamped, and they don't come out of a cookie cutter. Uh, John recognized this angel from the others because he's no longer carrying that vial of judgment. The scriptures indicate that angels have names, they do have visible differences, and they are distinct from each other. So this angel then that had one of the seven vials came to John again. And those seven vials, you remember, are the last plagues that were poured out on the empire of the Antichrist. And when those were poured out, they brought down the city in a very rapid destruction. There was a total destruction of the city of Babylon, and that brought to a close the reign of the Antichrist. So this angel shows John the contrast between these two cities, and they are diametrically opposed to one another. They're they're at opposite ends of the uh, spiritual spectrum. One represents all of the evil that the world has ever seen, and the other represents the most glorious good that God has ever done for his people. One of those cities, Babylon, contains the fullest extent of man's depravity, And the other one contains the fullest extent of man's holiness, which is achieved by God's mercy and his grace in bringing believers out of their depravity. So in a sense, I think that we could say that this angel shows John just how far down man can go when he's left to his own devices, and then how far up that man can be lifted when God takes hold of him and brings him up in salvation So I think that what we have here is a great picture of our helplessness and what happens when we cut God out of the picture. Because without God, there is nothing but destruction. And we see the practical outworking of that, I think, in our lives in America. Because the more affluent that we become, the less dependent that we become upon God. And as we become less dependent upon God, our country continues to sink lower and lower into depravity. There is no hope for America but in God. 
President Reagan was fond of calling America a shining city on a hill. And there's no doubt that he had a biblical reference in mind. But the only biblical reference that you could give for America would be Babylon because America is headed for the same place, doomed to destruction without God. And so this angel shows the contrast of those two systems, and that's something the Bible is always doing. It's always contrasting these two, whether it's described as evil versus good or true versus false or earthly versus the heavenly or the kingdom of heaven versus the kingdom of Satan. And as we see it here, most dynamically, it's the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light, a real brightly shining light in the city of heaven. So this angel takes John and shows him the city. And here it says that John is taken up onto a high mountain. And I'm sure he took John to that place so that he could get a panoramic view of the city. And a little bit later in one of the other messages, we're going to talk about how large this city is, how just stunningly large that it really is. Now, we notice then in the first description, and there are verses and verses of description that are here, but the overarching one that we find is in verses 9 and 10, where this angel says, Come hither, I will show thee the bride, the lamb's wife. And when we discussed verse number 2, we noted that the city itself is not the bride, it's the home of the bride. And that bride is the church, the Lamb's espoused bride. And this marriage of the bride to Jesus Christ, the groom, is going to be consummated when the bride and groom are brought into this final home of heaven. Well, there are two other descriptions that we find in verse number 10. It says that it's a great city. And as I said, we'll leave that for a later message as we look at the dimensions. And it's also called here a holy city. And that is a very key description about it. It's unlike any other time that a city has ever been called holy. Now, the Jerusalem that's on the earth now has also been referred to as a holy city. And that's because it's a place that's been separated to God. The temple was there. The God's people were there. But Jerusalem on earth has never been holy in the sense that the new Jerusalem, this heavenly city, is holy. And that's because this city is absolutely perfect in every respect. There are some good places and there are nice places, there are beautiful places, but there isn't any place that's perfect in every respect. But that's the way the heavenly city will be because God doesn't allow any sin there. There is no smudge of sin that could ever enter this heavenly city. And further, we're going to be just like the angels when we get there. Uh, we'll, We'll be like the description I gave earlier, without possibility that we can sin. And verse number 8 made it very clear that there's no one who is going to be there that commits the kinds of sins that you find in that verse. Nothing like that is going to be in heaven. And then here is another description I think that's worthy of our notation here. It's worthy of consideration. Um... You may remember how Babylon got started. Again, we talked about this back in chapter 17 and other places, that Babylon got started with the Tower of Babel. And what were they doing when they built that city? Well, they started that tower in order to build it up as a place of idolatry, a place where they could actually reach into heaven, a place that they would worship their false gods. Well, I think that what we can see here by reading Scripture is that no one is ever going to reach God by building upwards. Babylon represents 
human effort to reach the place where God dwells. And we notice here how that man really reaches God because the angel showed John the new Jerusalem descending out of heaven from God. So man does not reach up to God. God reaches down to man. And that has profound implications on so many doctrines. Uh, I can't even name all the ones that that would touch. And, And I could pass over the overtly heretical people that believe in sacraments and idols and rosaries and purely man-made systems in order to get into heaven, those things are without question wrong. But we also have to consider that there are people that believe that the fall of man was not so radical as that it didn't leave man without the ability to reach up to God. And so there are still some that believe that there are some stepping stones that are left on the Tower of Babel that it hasn't been completely destroyed. And so they want to have some effort, even if it's just a tiny little bit that enables man to reach up to God. But the truth is, you're never going to reach God on any level. God has to come down. God has to come down and touch the lifeless sinner before you can ever be saved. And man is so thoroughly without ability to reach up to God that, as the Apostle Paul said, God has left no room whatsoever in this for man to boast. Even if there was just one minute, tiny, little bitty thing that you could do in order to get to heaven, it's man's propensity to say, this is what I did to help God save me. But that's not a picture that you have in the Bible. There's nothing that we do that helps God save us. Salvation is all of the Lord. So Babylon has to be completely destroyed. It must be completely destroyed, devastated, vanquished, disintegrated. And only then does that heavenly city come down. Well, we we have mention of angels again. And we'll skip down to verse number 12 this time. And we'll spend more time with the other particulars and the other verses at a later point. But I just want to show you angels here. And this time, uh, the second one I want to show you here are the guardian angels. In verse number 11, John begins to describe the light of the city. And in verse number 12, he talks about a description of the walls and the gates. And he says that the city had a great or had a wall great and high and had 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. I'm sure all of you have heard of guardian angels. Some people believe that Every believer has his own guardian angel, that this angel watches over you, and this is the angel that keeps you out of trouble, keeps you from harm. Well, I believe that we have more than one angel that looks after us. Uh, Some of you need an army of angels to look after you because you're always in trouble of some kind or another. But there, there could be hundreds of angels that look over us. Some people would say, well, if I have a guardian angel, then he must be sleeping most of the time because I've got lots of problems going on. And I I think I do remember there was a commercial on television that was about a guardian angel, and this angel was being trained, and he was continually messing up because he was always preoccupied with something else than the person he was supposed to be looking after. But I can tell you this, that whether you have one guardian angel, whether you have ten, whether you have a hundred, none of those angels is preoccupied. They know what's going on. They're working under orders from God. They know when and where to act. And we probably wouldn't complain too much about the trouble that we're in if we could actually see just how many evil angels there are that surround us, how many demons that there are that would just love to get their hands on us and tear us to shreds. 
But God has his angels that watch over us and keep that from happening. So we can think about that, that we always have those angels that are looking over us. But these particular angels, we think about them, why are they standing guard at the gates of the new Jerusalem? And there are angels, there's 12 of these gates, and there's an angel that stands at each one of them. And some say, well, those angels there are just ceremonial. They're like an honor guard. They don't have any intentions really of protecting anyone because their guns are filled with blanks. And some people look at it that way. They think that they're there for ceremony, that they don't really have any function. It's just a matter of the pomp and the splendor of the place and showing that this is God's city and they're there for just show. It's kind of like the grenadier guards at the Buckingham Palace. They have a function and they do have loaded guns, but mostly they're there for a tourist attraction. When you think about it, after all, who's going to threaten the life of a queen that doesn't have any power? So they're not likely to have to worry too much about that. But there are these guardian angels. And why would there be guardian angels where there is no evil? There are no demons anywhere to be found. There aren't any bad guys that could ever enter into the city. All the bad guys have been put into hell. So why are they guarding this city? And is that function of these angels merely ceremonial? Well, I don't think that it is. Uh, Even though there isn't anyone to fight, God wants to leave us with an impression of absolute security. At these 12 entrances, there is an angel, and they're not standing there with guns that are loaded with blanks, but rather they have the power of God in their arsenal. And I don't know for sure, but I would tend to think that these angels are the most powerful among the angels. And angels do vary in power. And that's demonstrated by the fact that God's angels are able to overcome Satan and his angels. So some angels have more power than others. So I don't think that these are the mess-up angels and they just got stuck on guard duty because of, you know, they weren't paying attention or whatever. And um, speaking facetiously, of course, about that, but I'm trying to get the point across here that God wants us to know with absolute certainty in every way possible that all fear of harm is gone when we get to heaven. The devil and his angels pose no threat to us. People in hell pose no threat. They've been locked out by this unimaginable security force. And if we ever thought that harm could come to us there, we can stop thinking about that because it simply won't happen. Now, we do need to understand this, that the reason that the Bible talks about things like this is to give us something that we can relate to. Heaven means nothing to us at all unless we can explore the negatives. And you may remember that we talked about verse number 8 in that light, that it's impossible for us to relate to things that we don't understand. And so we relate to things that heaven is not better than we understand what heaven is. We can relate to what we know better than what we don't know. We can relate to what we've seen better than what we can't see. And so what we can't relate to... Well, we can't relate to what we don't know. We can't relate to what we've never seen. And so God gives us a description here of angels standing guard at these gates to help us to understand the negative side of this, that God has removed all danger. So we're fully protected by God's angelic armies. Now, that's just a start in this. That's just a glimpse of one fascinating feature that's in heaven. And I I do hope that all of you know that you're going there I hope that you understand how to get there. You can't reach up to God. 
But God is reaching down to you in a, and has reached down in a most thrilling and gracious way. And that is that Jesus came down from heaven and he went and died on the cross. Then the Bible says he went even lower. He went down into the grave and then he went back up. And he did that so that we would be able to go to this city that's built by God. Revelation 20 21.10 says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. And so that's what Jesus did. He descended out of heaven from God. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4. He says, But unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill all things and part of filling all things is that Jesus went to prepare a place for us a place where all people that believe will go Abraham believed in a city with foundations whose builder and maker is God and we need to have the very same faith as Abraham truly believing that God has prepared a wonderful city for us to live in let's pray Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word and, and just the opportunity to read about this wonderful place called heaven. And we're just barely even touching uh, just a very, very small part of the description that we have here given by the Apostle John. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be uh, looking for that place, to live as if we're going to be there, to live as citizens of that place already because you have called us that. And then, Lord, I also ask that you'd help us to be a testimony to other people, a witness to others, even as the song that Brother Dalton sang, that how many people will be in heaven because of just the small things that we did, teaching Sunday school classes or giving an offering, uh, being in the place where God wants us to be in a place of service. People see that testimony, and by that testimony, they're led to belief in Christ. Help us to understand that we make an impression on people every single day of our lives, and we want to see those people in heaven as well. Lord, bless us. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.